0: Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
1: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches.
0: If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Lenny Goodings and here's a snippet. I would say that publishing is very much about taking responsibility and understanding your power and, and also, I think, you know, it's a particular thing for a woman to accept power and to understand that power is, is okay and it's not um, to be shamed of, but to sort of, to how to manage power intelligently and sort of in a way that's uh, egalitarian in a funny way, or at least understanding consensus, politics, etc. I think
1: those are very, very difficult things. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to historian and travel writer William Dalrymple.
2: We spoke with William about his early travel book in Xanadu, about his quartet of books on the East India Company, and about the art of writing an excellent book proposal.
1: It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it.
2: William, it's really great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for finding time to speak to the podcast. I wanted to start by asking you about the quartet and this bringing together of these, these four books, almost 20 years' work into one, one kind of boxed set, as it were. What, is it, what does it feel like to, to kind of be, be bringing this together and presenting it as one piece of work?
3: It's, uh, the, the company quartet is sitting before me and it gives me still a rush of pleasure to uh, look at it. It's an enormous fat thing. It got stuck, allegedly, in the Suez Canal jam, which is why it came out a couple of weeks after it was meant to. And, and, and by the, the size and weight of it, it could possibly have caused the Suez Canal jam uh, just by its, its sheer bulk. It's uh, four paperback books in a lovely white slipcase and it just looks beautiful. Um, and it is nice feeling to complete something like this. Uh, I began in 1998 uh, in the research for white Muggles, And um, though there have been two books, one, one proper book and one small book in the middle, basically the last 20 years completed in 2019, um, have been writing these four volumes. Uh, and uh, there's a particular feeling that... The door is locked on that bit of my life now in that a lot of what was most interesting, I think, about these four books was the access for the first time to the Indian side of the story via Mughal documents, which are all in uh, 19th century Indian Persian, um, which is a very recherche uh, thing to be able to read. Uh, It's written generally in very difficult uh, shakasta, often uh, often manuscripts uh, with shorthand, scribal shorthand. And the reason that I was able to access this was one extraordinary man called Bruce Winnell, who I worked with for 20 years, who was a wonderful, eccentric, extraordinary figure, lived in council accommodation in York, Um, never had two beans to rub together, but was the most sort of flamboyantly dressed, wonderfully brilliant uh, man who'd lived in Iran, Peshawar, crossed Afghanistan on horseback, and really not only spoke totally perfect, unaccented Persian and Dari uh, that always astonished Afghans or Persians, but had this ability to read not only manuscripts and printed sources, but uh, uh, calligraphy, stone calligraphy left on in, in tombstones and so on. And it was an extraordinary discovery, really, to realise how few people really could read this stuff, uh, because the language of the courts of India... From the thirteenth century until the mid nineteenth century was Persian, just like you know the diplomatic language of Europe was French in the nineteenth century and and you know all those characters in Tolstoy speak French to each other um well persian was, was had that status in India, and even major Hindu courts used Persian for business and now. No one in India at all speaks that language. It's a completely dead language. When I first went there in the 1980s, there were still old men who read Persian newspapers and a couple of Persian newspapers being published. But that has completely stopped. And uh, even among academics, I find people that claim to be able to read Persian really struggle over um, manuscript sources uh, with this. And... um, the occasions that Bruce couldn't do something and I and I was forced to send off difficult manuscripts to other people, the results that came back were very, very unsatisfactory. Um, so it was like having a key to the wardrobe in Narnia or something. Bruce would come and move in um, and for 20 years lived for a third, sometimes a quarter of the year um, uh, with me and my wife uh, in Delhi. And we would go through these manuscripts together. I I didn't have the language skills um, or to read the stuff, but I didn't know the history very well. And vice versa, he he didn't know the history so well, but but was able to read this um, these manuscripts as fluently as as you or I can read the the, the front page of the Guardian today. And um, over the course of twenty years, we were able to access an extraordinary range of manuscripts from India, from Pakistan, Afghanistan. Uh, the British Library, obscure provincial sources in India's extraordinary library, for example, in a place called Tonk in Rajasthan, which uh, very few people I know have ever been to, but has this astonishing richness of Persian manuscripts. And um, Bruce died of pancreatic cancer shortly after the publication of The Anarchy, which was the fourth one of these books, in uh, 2020. And it feels very much as if, you know, even if I wanted to, Add a fifth volume at any point to this. Uh, uh, it would be a great challenge to have the same access to the Persian language sources, which I've had for the last twenty years on call, on tap. Uh, and so this is dedicated to Bruce Winnell, and uh, is very much a, a joint uh, work with him. Uh, and um, and it does feel very final. This feels like this does feel like the end of something. So I'm now working on a, on a completely different book on a completely different period of early Indian history, uh, ancient Indian history, and going back to my. Teenage enthusiasm, really for archaeology uh, and uh, and a bit of art history uh, and it 's like you know starting at a new school or something it, it does feel like you know, i 'm the new boy on the block uh, uh, and i 'm making really kind of quite major errors and everything that I post on Twitter, which people kindly point out to me there's going to be a lot of work uh, before i um, uh, have the slightest authority in this period and uh, I get to know. Uh, which locker room to go to, and which uh, uh, where the where the sports fields are, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, it's, it's it's nice to be swimming in different waters after twenty years uh, in the same sea. But uh, uh, it does feel a very final moment, and it is you know, like losing the key to nothing. I can no longer go through the wardrobe into uh, uh, into. Uh, meet Mister. Tumnus anymore. He's, he's 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 beyond reach.
1: And am I right in thinking that you wrote the quartet? Um you know, non-chronologically. What was the logic
3: with that? The logic was that it was originally going to be a different quartet. (laughs) When I started work on um, white Mughals, I thought it was going to be part of a series of Mughal books. Um, And the reason being that there was this extraordinary omission uh, in uh, literature coming out of South Asia in the um, 1990s and 1980s, whereby India would produce a whole succession of astonishing novelists, Salman Rushdie, V.S. Naipaul from that generation, then Amitav Ghosh, Vikram Seth, uh, then Arundhati Roy, Kiran Desai, Aravind Adiga. And the Indian fiction First Eleven would have been this world-beating team that would uh, be able to knock uh, the English or uh, uh, even the Americans for six uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. But mysteriously and oddly, there was no non-fiction equivalent. And I think in the entire history of the uh, prize that used to be called the Samuel Johnson is now called the uh, Bailey Gifford, I think um, there was one Indian long-listed and one Indian shortlisted, listed um, And that gave a space for me to operate in. Uh, There was no one writing the sort of history that so many of the people uh, that you've interviewed for this podcast, such as Anthony Beaver, Simon Seebeck, Montefiore, Peter Frankopan. There was no one writing in that space. And although there was an astonishing wealth of Indian academic history being published, uh, there was no one writing um, top level history uh, using primary sources, uh, but uh, writing in a way that you want to read uh, rather than writing for other academics in an academic press. Uh, using academic language. Um, And so these great stories of Indian history were simply not being read widely. So the Mughals seemed a very obvious um, starting point, as this was, in in a sense, the the moment when India was not only dominating about 40% of world trade, um, but uh, was the richest land on the earth. There's only two points in history when India has generated more wealth than China. Um, and between the two of them, both have generated more wealth in Europe for everything except the last 400 years. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the Mughals had never really... But there was one a one volume, Bamber Gascoigne introduction to Mughal history. But, you know, for example, there was no modern biography of Akbar or Shah Jahan or Aurangzeb, these major historical figures who formed the landscape of India for 300 years. But I soon realised that there was another, in a sense, more interesting story beside that, which was the story of the East India Company, And the East India Company was interesting because in a sense it was inhabiting the same landscape and and its enemies were the Mughals and it took over from the Mughals. But what was fascinating was two things. One, it was a story of a corporation rather than an empire. And and that fact had been muddied. I mean, in a lot of history books, people talk about the British, the English uh, in India, as if in the 18th century, as as if you're talking about a governmental uh, effort and... uh, as if you're uh, imagining that this is emanating from the Foreign Office or Downing Street. Uh, when this was absolutely not the case, uh, the East India Company was a private corporation. It operated from a single office block, uh, five windows wide, uh, in Leadenhall Street, which is where um, uh, the Lloyds Building is now. Uh, underneath that, in the in, in, in the land beneath that, was this extraordinary business, which not only succeeded in conquering India in the course of the 18th century. In 1799, the, uh, the East India Company had 200,000 troops, which was exactly double the size of the British army just before it rearmed to fight Napoleon. And uh, the East India Company had 200,000 Indian sepoys. The British army had 100,000 uh, 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 British men in its ranks. So you had this corporation operating from an office, Which had an army double the size of its host country and which took over the Hilconda, but then went on to use India as a base to plant opium, which it then sold illegally and fought wars to fight uh, to to sell in China uh, and uh, became the biggest narcotics operation in history, which made the Medellin Cartel or Pablo Escobar look like uh, child's play. Uh, And then went on to sell tea that it uh, bought in China around the globe uh, and did so with such aggressiveness that it generated the Boston Tea Party. That's East India Company tea, which is being dumped in uh, uh, in Boston Harbour. So it was a thrilling moment to discover. This was a huge story of of, of the first corporate multinational. This wasn't the story of, of you know, Jolly Britain and and uh, heroic uh, whiteys sort of uh, flying the Union Jack. This is the story of the modern, uh, sorry, of the precursor of modern multinationals like Goldman Sachs or Facebook or Google or you know take your pick on any of the of the massive corporations, Halliburton, Blackwater, um, throwing its weight around in the eighteenth century and conquering whole continents and enslaving whole people for no reason other than profit, which seeped into the second interesting reason to write these books now, which was that um, over the last twenty years there's been this strange anomaly growing whereby. The work that academics have been doing on colonialism have have uncovered more and more horrors, uh, and the the reality of the asset-stripping, looting, and plundering that went on, particularly under the East India Company, was of a completely different order to the uh, to the kind of rather sanitised version that Brit- British children used to learn about in school and now no longer learn about at all. Um, so, this was. Turned out to be you know, a really fascinating way into looking at British colonialism in India. Because while the Raj certainly had a whole rhetoric about a civilising mission and all that, the reality was the Raj was only the, the very end of this. Uh, the East India Company is founded in 1599, which is the year that Hamlet wrote Shakespeare. And it got nationalised effectively in 1858, which is 250 years later. The Raj then lasts the final rump of only 90 years from 1858 to 1947, which was the year of partition and the British withdrawal from India. So while historians generally focus on the Raj and the whole story of Kipling and Curzon and guys on verandas drinking pink gins and uh, ladies in crinolines wafting along club lawns, this is, A, only the tail end, the epilogue, really, of the main story, and B, um, was in a sense the most presentable and palatable end of a... 250-year asset-stripping operation that quite clearly was run by a commercial company for profit. The East City Company never made the slightest pretense. I mean, in a sense, one of the things that's very clear and nice about the company is the company was very op- uh, very open about the fact that it was there to make a profit because it was a corporation. It existed for its shareholders, for its directors. Uh, at no point did the company ever pretend that it was there for the sake of the Indians and, uh, and it was bringing anything other than... Um, ships to export things from India uh that was its contribution it was it was an operation around the coast which which took things out which extracted first of all textiles uh, uh in a in a commercial basis which did bring wealth to India because they were paying for it in gold and silver uh but from the mid-18th century onwards they were just seizing territory and using that as a base to uh, often put the weavers in in camps literally um whereby this story uh uh That some of the weavers were so desperate they allegedly cut off their thumbs to escape this, Um, which may or may not be true, but it certainly gives a picture of the sort of world we're talking about. Um, And uh, so I was very excited. So you had had a whole area of history which had barely been written and which had not been written at all in an accessible literary fashion as opposed to detailed academic studies in academies which told two major stories of our times one is the story of of, of corporate violence and uh, and the power of corporations and the way that corporations can resist and fight the state which is you know one of the big stories of our time but it's also a story of the naked violence of colonialism which in a sense is the other big story of our time. So, uh, I, I, so I sort of changed course after White Mughals to, uh, to return to your original question after a long detour and ended up making this uh, four books about the company, which occupies very much the same territory as the, as the end of the Mughals, but had a slightly different focus.
2: Can we roll back now to, to the beginning? So I was fascinated by the, the new introduction to Xanadu that you you sent over, um, and, but particularly about how... Um, you know it began with this travel grant that that you saw could you take us back to you know your your early 20s and how you know where your interest in writing as well came was that something that was established by the time that you received this embossed envelope telling you you had to go and spend the money
3: well long before then sort of 15 years before then I've got there's a little school notebook somewhere sitting around at home um which is was the school essay aged eight or seven, I think, about what you want to do when you grow up. And I said I wanted to be an author or an archaeologist. Um, and that is kind of more or less what I am now. I both an author and a historian um, and writing about archaeology again now in my 50s. Um, so that has always been a constant, reinforced by the fact that I have... Um, very few other talents. That's not me being falsely modest. I am astonishingly bad at turning up on time. Um, I would never be able to hold down an office job. I'm uh, innumerate. I'm actually sort of and increasingly, I think, in my in my fifties, mid fifties, uh, actually sort of technically <laughs> dyslexic in numbers. Uh, so any sensible job in the city or uh, in industry um, would have been a disaster. Uh, and uh, I always had this one talent, which was to be able to write essays. Um, and then uh, in, enlarged it to writing student journalism, and, and and then from that jumped into writing books. So, well, I've got many friends whose careers have not always prospered, who have been sort of wildly more uh, talented uh, than I have. Who, who you know had the option of becoming opera singers or ballet dancers or nuclear scientists or uh, uh, astrophysicists or something. Uh, my path was always very clear because there's nothing else I could really make a living out of. Um, and as you say, this all sort of slightly came into focus in my last year at Cambridge when I passed the notice board at Trinity College, where I was. Um, and there was a notice up uh, offering travel grants to medieval historians. Now, I knew there were only a handful of other medieval historians in college, so this was not going to be a difficult uh, one to apply for. So I, without particularly thinking about it, I went to the Times Atlas of World History in the college library and looked for what was the longest medieval journey Uh, And it was a choice of two, really. There was Ibn Battuta's journey, uh, which led me through all sorts of uh, 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 even longer journeys from Tangiers to China and back. Or there was um, the slightly easier version of Marco Polo. So I copied down a couple of pages on Marco Polo from the Times Atlas, set it off, forgot about it. And then shortly after my uh, exams in the second year, found this envelope uh, on uh, Tucked under my door, with a cheque for seven hundred and fifty pounds which in those days was was you know at uh, at least double, maybe five times the value uh, that it is today. Um, maybe imagine a five thousand pound grant t- today would be the equivalent. Um, and this was a a wonderful thing because it was you know allowed three months of of travel, uh, backpacky travel, uh, with no worries about how to finance it. But this was also a moment when, in the mid-1980s, travel writing was taken very seriously. Granter had published a travel writing issue. People like Paul Theroux and Eric Newby were always on the front page of every review supplement, um, going off on a journey around Britain or taking a train to China or across Africa or something. And I was very into that whole uh, literature. I'd I'd discovered Patrick Lee Furmore and Bruce Chatwin and... Uh, Robert Byron, and was reading this stuff voraciously, and and uh, whenever I went on a journey, was producing sort of pastiche sub Robert Byron um, diary entries, and and um, and that, in a sense, was what In was. It was pastiche Robert Byron, very much looking back at that uh, English travel writing tradition from the nineteen thirties, full of stuff that's now uh, I look at with complete horror, as it's <laughs> not just. Uh, uh, unpolitically correct, but uh, full of straightforwardly racist assumptions and, uh, and imperial um, uh, ideas that I was completely at ease with uh, at Cambridge coming out of a public school, age 21 in the mid 1980s, and which now appears to be from an antediluvian, different world where uh, people were saying and thinking things and, t- and making assumptions about the world, which no decent person. Uh, would do today, and it is astonishing uh, to see how far the world has changed in those forty years. At that point, for example, China was an incredibly impoverished uh, city um, uh, country coming out of the Cultural Revolution, and everyone was on bicycles. Uh, now, of course, it's challenging America for world dominance, and and the change in attitudes that that has uh, generated, and, and, and the way that the world has changed within our uh, within those forty years, um, makes a book like In Xanadu uh, a rather dubious. Um, uh proposition now so when um but the book has remained popular and people do still read it and it's got lots of jokes in it which make it palatable um and some history and i took some trouble with the writing of it and so when bloomsbury wanted to reissue it i issued a, a uh <laughs> introduction to uh, to this book that more or less disowns it as a, as a toxic early work but uh, one that i have to say i'm still you know it it was the happiest journey of my life it started my career it was a major bestseller and kicked me off in this uh uh direction and as any um one who's just beginning in writing uh, is probably aware you know in a sense your first book is is unbelievably important because it either launches your career or kills it uh, if your first book is no good, or has no success, rather, uh, which is a different thing, but actually the, the reality, it can be very good, but if it doesn't actually kick off and, and, and get you into the bookshops and, and uh, find an audience, um, it's kind of curtains. Um, while if you have a big success, everyone wants to. Um, and so anyone... Uh, I know that this podcast is aimed at people perhaps beginning their careers in writing, Um I met Bruce Chatwin just before setting off. Uh, no, just after I came back from the Inzaladou trip, just while I was selling the book. And he gave me some advice, which I've never forgotten, which was um, you can rush journalism as much as you like. You can pop out pieces quickly and send them out into the world and they will never be forgotten. But books have always got to be absolutely the best that you can possibly do because they're there forever and they are what people remember of you. Uh, uh, both while you're alive and, and after you're gone. And if you need to sell your things and sell your house and, and, and risk everything to, write the, to get the time to write the book that you want to write, do that. Everything depends on that. And never produce, never think, you know, I'm just going to dash something off um, and, and send it to a publisher. Here's something, I'm going to get a quick advance for this. And that destroys your career. You make far more money being, say, Arundhati Roy, producing two novels in 20 years, which are both uh, shortlisted uh, or winners of the booker, than you do producing one book a year uh, for 20 years, which is also far more soul-destroying and, and far bigger effort. Um, and... I, I think it was very good advice. Uh, write, I mean, I tend to spend between four and five years uh, on a book. Um, I've written a couple of books that have taken less than that, but generally, they're, they're certainly all four of these company quartet books have, have taken that long. And put everything into them and, and gone into debt when necessary, particularly for White Mughals, the first one, where I, where I was familiarising myself with the territory. Um, and got into debt. and But it's, if if. If it's a success, everything changes for you. And and after White Moogles came out, I did sign a big five-book deal, which uh, the book I'm working on at the moment is the final volume now of that, um, which has allowed me to function all my middle age as um, uh, as an author. Uh, and that five-book deal, is, as I say, has been uh, from by Bloomsbury, uh, has kept me in, in uh, adequate funds for... Um, for my career, but that is only possible in a sense if you if you really put everything uh, into something. One of the things I learn the longer I am in this business is you kind of as a student you kind of think you know there are writers who are geniuses and just produce wonderful books. Um, often, that's simply not the case. What happens is that the really great writers whose prize prize you sorry, the really great writers whose prose you really admire such as, in my case, Hemingway, Robert Barron, actually Fermore, Robert McFarlane, um, John Berend. Uh, these people do not find it any easier than the rest of us to put a sentence down. But what they do do is they just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and polish and polish and polish so that the adequate sentences they put down become good sentences and then become very good sentences and then become excellent sentences that are unforgettable. And and that's what makes the difference. It's the rewriting, the polishing, the re-editing. The re- uh, and it's like a sculptor with a, with a block of stone. You start with a block of stone and you chip away at it and it then begins to look like something and gradually looks something beautiful and then it becomes something polished and finished and, and ready to go out. Um, but without that rewriting and, and uh, self-criticism and the ability to take criticism from editors and friends you trust um that in a sense i think is the thing that makes great writers rather than good writers and i've got some friends who who are super talented but who are quite touchy about editorial intervention by other people and and and, you know say this is my work publish it as it is or not Uh, and all almost inevitably you kind of just know that the, the, the stuff that they are publishing is just you know one stage off being very, very good because they just can't take that criticism and won't rewrite and won't rework it and won't listen to other people's advice. Uh and what I do with all my books is that I print them out and I show it to people. Uh and often um particularly in the early days, you'd find that people would land on the same passage and say just, you know, this isn't working or in another place, this is wonderful. And both of those are important information that, you know, you know the stuff that's really good. And you know the stuff which is much much less good and has to either be contracted or to or to disappear altogether. Uh, and I find that you know if you if you pass a chapter, say, to five different people, and they pause on the same area as being problematic or the same problem in general about the whole passage, then there's a problem, and you need to change it. Um, and you know it doesn't have to be. I often show my books to my colleagues and peers who I respect, but also often to just ordinary readers who like reading that kind of book. Uh, and they're often just as useful, just saying, you know, I got really bored in the second half, or, uh, you know, it it starts really well, but that bit in the middle just totally lost me or something, you know. And that's crucial advice for you, because, you know, in a sense, as a writer, you, you cease to be able to look at your own work and, and, and think critically about it and, and are not always aware what are the good bits or what are the no-good-at-all bits uh, until much later. Have you always been
1: uh, open to feedback in that way? Or is that something that you've learned with time?
3: I've always, I think, been open to it. And I think it's a major strength. Um, and as I say, I've got, I've got one or two friends who so I won't mention who I know resist that process uh, and have a strong sense of what they think is right and wrong. And, and I think you know, that they've diminished their own work because of it. I think it's a crucial asset as a writer to be slightly unconfident of your work. Uh, and to be able to recognize its laws i um, i mean sometimes there's i mean there are several readers i have who um, i give it to and i and they're very very critical bruce uh Wonell, my uh, my colleague who translated was was a kind of irritating because he was so, Uber critical of everything, not just my work, but uh, anything. He couldn't write himself. I mean, he had a. a, a, a Ruth had these extraordinary talents, but was unable to put words on paper except uh, in a translation. Um, <coughs> but perhaps because of that, it was hypercritical of everyone else's writing, including mine. And but would go through with a um, detailed spider crawl notes all over the all four margins of any given piece of paper, uh, and was not only pointing out. Um, factual errors or things that needed to be checked um all of which of course was crucial help uh but also um recommending that whole paragraphs should disappear or even pages and times because they're just boring or and at the time of course he felt slightly riled uh you know that's i thought i actually i think that's quite good You'd say, you know yeah. um and that's okay, you know, you can, you, can, you can hold on to some bits that other people don't like, but in the end, you have got to listen to your, your friends and people you trust and their, and their views. Um, and uh, I used to eventually, you know, inevitably with Bruce, I would sort of huff and puff and, and then go off and do exactly as he'd said. <laughs> Message from our sponsor,
1: Vitsu. Marta's story.
2: If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives.
1: If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, v-i-t-s-o-e.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606.
2: Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. William, could you tell us about your your research method? because you know this is I think, as we mentioned when we spoke briefly on the phone last week when we had Anthony Beaver on the show a long time ago, he claimed that his research method came from you, but you say this is in fact the other the other way around, and this guardian piece you wrote you, you sent us which we'll we'll put in the show notes shows seems to suggest this is it's like a pretty refined and pretty kind of elaborate system that you have. Could you take us through you know how you developed that? And how, how it works for you and, and why you find that a useful way to work
3: so this is writing history books now um, there's a, a, we could talk later about um, travel writing which is a, a, obviously a, a completely different process um, with history books I went and saw Anthony and um, this was in the period, this is when I was just beginning White Moogles which is sort of 1998 which is when Starling Brad was still you know a number one bestseller all over the world and Anthony was regarded everywhere as the absolute number one historian at the moment and so I went to him and learnt how uh, he worked, and he kept uh, a dateline on his laptop, and he kept. oh well, I can just. And actually, this isn't. This is if if this wasn't a podcast and if this was a, a Zoom call, I could show you my card indexes. But I certainly, in in my version of it, I have three card indexes, um, which are just filling up nicely for my current project. Uh, one is people, one is places, and one is topics. So. Every time you come across an interesting anecdote about a person that may be in the book, it goes into that person gets a card and then two, three, four, five, six, seven, however many cards it is. Uh, ditto whenever you come to a place that you're writing about that you need, uh, that has a lovely description of it or a quote from someone who visited it, you pop that down. And then topics, everything else really. You know, um, From my current book, uh, uh, Chinese Influence on Southeast Asia the Devaraja debate, erotic art, ancient India, ancient Indian astrology, Jain mathematics, the Kushans, Meru, sacred mathematics, Roman trade with India. So anything else really that doesn't count as a person or a place it goes into the next box. And then you can, then those boxes can multiply, particularly I often find that the people box uh, sort of splits in two and A to N goes into one box and N onwards goes into the next. And that means that when you're writing it, and this is the crucial thing, that The key is to be able to write quickly. Um, Spend years at your research, three, four years, whatever it takes, in the case of a big history book, four years, five years, if you can afford it. Um, But then when it comes to writing, you must have all your materials around you and you must write at white heat um, and have everything to hand. And if you have all the quotes already diced up and cut into your dateline and... A series of cards, maybe 10, maybe 20, about every major character and a, a small amount of uh, detail about the minor characters and have all the descriptions of a place to hand when you want to you know describe Delhi in 1750 or Constantinople in the 6th century or Beijing during the Tang Dynasty uh, or Chang'an during the, the Tang Dynasty. When you have that kind of thing... Um, you can just reach for those cards and then reach for the the original sources, uh, which will hopefully be in your library or photocopied or on your laptop or wherever. And you can do it quickly. And if you can move at pace and produce 2,000, 3,000 words a day or at least 1,000, the book will get going. And I try and write my books in between six months, if you're lucky, to nine months uh, or even a year if you're not. Uh, but never more. It should be you should it should be a period when ideally you're not doing anything else, you're not moving around. Um, for me, I try and make it a period of austerity. I go on a diet. Uh, I, I don't go out in the evening. It's very much Netflix territory. And what lockdown felt very much like a book writing period to me. You know, it was that period when you're just in with your family, uh, having dinner at home, going to bed early, and getting up early, and, and getting on with that. And and that's the discipline. It's like doing an exam, like doing finals every four years. Um, uh, and you can you can monkey around for uh, the first three years and and go off on holiday and uh, and and go out to dinner and get drunk and have have a, have a good time. But when it actually comes to writing the book, that is when you have to uh, get just act together and and uh, focus and get on and get this stuff down and work hard all day for as long as it takes. Um, I'm very flattered that Anthony says this, but it's simply not the case. I remember the other person who at that time had made a huge hit was Amanda Foreman, who had just come out with Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, which again was a biography very much of the sort that I had in mind for uh, white Moogles when it was in its early stages. So I went and saw her, and she used the beaver system too. So it's not just, uh, it wasn't just me that was copying Anthony's method. Um, uh, it, there was a whole generation of us. I, I suspect Seabag probably has a very similar method. Um,
1: I think he does from memory. Has quite a similar research method.
2: Although what he said though, because you in the in the in the piece you sent us said that you you don't like dash out a first draft like a novelist does. I think Rachel Seabag said he did, right? Did he? He like dash it? Yeah, I think so. I should listen to more of your
3: podcasts. How interesting.
2: We'd, I'd need to go back and check, but yeah, was...
3: I absolutely, I absolutely don't do that. No, I um, I, I. And one of, the, I mean, writers divide, I think, between those who, you know, uh, plot massively in advance and those that don't. Uh, I plot massively in advance, and I know by the time I start writing, every last curve. Although, of course, there are moments when suddenly you you make realizations and you, and, and uh, you put two and two together about stuff you've gathered, and, and and it takes off in a slightly different direction. But very largely, it's 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 following a plan you formed before you put pen to paper at all. And I kind of presume that every writer of fiction, sorry, every writer of non-fiction and biography and history did the same, that uh, that uh, if you're dealing with vast quantities of material that you've gathered over a period of four years, you need to have it in, uh, in a very ordered state. Uh, and while I could easily imagine Seabag dashing off a first draft of one of his novels, which he also writes, of course, um, I would be surprised if he uh, dashed off a... a a first draft of his of his big history books but if he does then it, it works
1: <laughs> as per that guardian piece as well your writing routine is quite straight. you start at 5 30 in the morning you mentioned printing things out before you go to bed and you kind of work on a chapter and revise it every day for a month until you're kind of done with it um could you tell us a little bit more about that and why you find writing i guess quite challenging and, and why that process works for you
3: as you just said this is this is very much the writing routine as opposed to the researching routine so for for the two or three lovely years when you 're going into archives and then even lovelier years when you're uh, sitting um, hopefully by a pool or in the garden or under a tree or whatever it is uh, in an olive grove or wherever lovely spot you 've gone to to uh, to pull the whole thing together borrowed somebody 's house somewhere um you that is the kind of the happy period of a book when it's all coming together and you're getting to get really know these characters well and the story is, is now becoming very clear in your head. Um, and then you enter this writing phase, and the writing phase is like for me like doing finals. It's no fun at all. It's it, it's the it's the payback for all the fun you've had in the previous three years. And you do get up very early. You uh, I try and first of all I have by my bed the printout. Of the passages that I've just been writing, and I try and produce at least twice or three times a week a whole chapter up to up to where you've got. So you have by your bed maybe twenty pages of uh, A4 uh, on a on a on a folder or something that you can lean against. I get up, I go out to my uh, terrace in uh, in my house in Delhi, and I and I like always write in India because my social life is less busy there, and um, there's less distraction, uh, and I can really get focused into it it's quite good if you if you're living you know with children or um in a small house or uh your social life or your, your life in general just does not lend itself to writing then this is the moment for that many people go off to writer's colonies or something to, to so that they can clear their head and get uh uh, really down into the world of the book and live and dream and, and sleep with the book um, so that you wake up in the morning with the next bit in your head. And if it's working, this is exactly what happens. You you you, uh, you Even if you have gone out the night before, even if you've been just watching Netflix or a movie or something, um, you go to bed with the printout beside your bed, you make coffee the following morning and you read it through with a pen and you correct everything that doesn't look right. And that can take an hour or two hours, even if it's if it's towards the end of a chapter and you are printing out forty pages. Uh, and what inevitably happens is that the bits, as you as you reach the end of a chapter, the the early bits of the chapter begin to have come good uh, and don't need much work, and you'll spot odd infelicities that you correct. But uh, and then you get into the bit, you know, maybe ten pages in, where. You're spotting more, and then you get into the recent work from the from the last two three days, where it's only been through one edit or uh, or none, uh, and that is often full of uh, horrors and uh, misspellings and and terrible sentences and or sentences which are too long. And so, by if I if I got down to work by six by half past seven or something, um, you've got a, a an annotated manuscript. I then uh, often go for a, a run or a walk or uh, have breakfast, and then the day begins. It's often by that stage, or and then send some emails if anything urgent. Though I try and put that off until the evening, ideally, um, uh, and ditto social media, which can uh, absorb your whole day if you let it. Um, lock up the then lock up the the phone, turn off the internet, uh, and you start typing in the corrections. That you put on your annotated manuscript, and by that stage it 's often eleven o 'clock so you 've got up you've got up very early, but by eleven o 'clock you haven 't written a, a, a new word you 've just been correcting, and then often about eleven the writing begins, and the key then is to put off lunch as long as possible um, and I find that if I can put off lunch till three o 'clock, which drives my family mad and and uh, and uh, they uh, admit <laughs> any arguments over the time of lunch have developed uh, if, uh uh, over the years, but um, if you can put off lunch till two or three, uh, you get four, five really prime writing hours of new material. Again, then a break, then a uh, then more emails or chores or changing light bulbs or whatever needs to be done in the house, collecting children, doing you know whatever, you know, real life intervenes for a bit, um, in all this mess and clobber, and um, and then a the second session by evening, maybe five till seven or five till eight. Um going over what you've done in the morning, uh first edit, uh planning the next day's work, um uh reading you know, getting out those card index cards and 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 reading the people about the people and places you're gonna be writing about the following day, producing a detailed plan of how you think it's going to go, and then dinner and the printout. And it starts again, like um that Greek myth of the guy having his liver torn out <laughs> every morning. It starts again the following morning, uh, and uh, off you go.
2: That was absolutely fascinating, William. Thank you for, for telling us about your process. Um, it's, a, it's a rule of the podcast as well that we always ask guests about money and how it has interfaced with their writing lives. Now, you, you alluded to this, uh, I think, with that your, your multi-book contract, and be as frank or as guarded as you want, but you know, how, how have you made this work? Over the twenty years that you've been doing this this quartet of books, how is it how has it worked financially to as a life Well, it
3: works differently for other, other people for every person um, but I was in that very very fortunate circumstance of writing a book that publishers wanted from kickoff, so my very first book in Xanadu, um, when we came back from that trip, we managed to get it, get it into the front page of The Times Saturday Review. Um, two students go off and find Xanadu and uh, and that generated four or five uh, letters from publishers and from agents offering to um, represent me and I chose uh, one called Michael Fishwick who was then with Collins, and is still my publisher 25 years later or 30 years later which is a, a very rare thing um, and he's a fabulous editor uh, and has been hugely supportive throughout my career. And, uh, he then moved to Bloomsbury after about, uh, seven or eight years. And I eventually moved with him, um, uh, with a year's gap, uh, after I finished, um, I think the age of Carly was my last book with Harper Collins. And then, uh, uh, no, sorry, the white Moogles was my last book with, with him and Harper Collins. And then, uh, the last Moogle was the first with Bloomsbury. And we signed at that point. I was very lucky, um, when i had finished white moogles and had won quite a lot of prizes and become a big bestseller internationally and was my first really big hit in america and in india and in australia as well as this country at that prime moment uh, i was very lucky because bloomsbury had suddenly realized that this the small publisher then very niche publisher had suddenly getting vast sums of money pumping into it from harry potter Uh, And they were warned that they were ripe for a corporate takeover because they had a vast, uh, unusual for publishers, had a vast cash balance uh, and quite a small operation. So they took on new editors. And one of the editors they took on was Mike Fishwick, who I'd been with by that stage for four books, five books, five books. And... um, we He offered me a five-book contract. And everyone said, don't take it. You're mad to take a five-book contract. Uh, it'll tie you down. You never know what you really want to do. But it was a very, very large offer. Uh, they made a similar offer uh, to William Boyd, who also took it and took a couple of other people. The guy that does the, um, what's it called Hugh Fernie Whittingstall. Um, so they bought in a few uh, people that they regarded as sort of... Um, uh, biggish guns uh, to, to to fill out their stable and, and a few new editors to buy the stuff. And this was the year before the Kindle came in when suddenly authorial advances started to decline. So I was very lucky and I got this big five-book advance um, just at the moment that the, the, felt like very much the peak of the market. And that wasn't planning at all. That was pure good fortune A of, of, of Bloomsbury B, Bloomsbury going for my editor. Uh, and then having this war chest with which to spend money. And so it, it was a uniquely lucky moment through no planning at all of my own. Um, and that five-book contract has kept me going till this year, and, and I'm beginning to... um I'm, I'm nearly now in the writing phase of, of this next book. Um, and will then go out into the market with a plan for the, for the book after that um, and sell it. But I have an agent, um in my case David Godwin, who's wonderful and works hard, put everything into your proposal it's like writing your own check uh when you're writing a book proposal do not rush it out do not um uh, scribble something on the back of an envelope and send it either to the agent or the publisher you really 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 want to think hard about this proposal and it has to be absolutely perfect because (coughs) everything depends on that and uh, at any stage in your career that's true not just beginning um And uh, if you dash out a half-finished idea that sounds implausible, uh, you won't get any money. And if you write a brilliant proposal uh, that is astonishingly good, uh, you will, even though no one knows who you are. My son, Sam, last year, uh, was working on Partition. He thought he was going to be working on a documentary, but with lockdown, the whole thing failed. And uh, he turned it into a um, book proposal, and he polished and polished and polished this proposal. Which initially wasn't very good, Um, and by the end of lockdown and several relights was really fantastically good. Sent it to uh, David Godwin, and Godwin sent it out, and he got a a very large advance, um, uh, which is online uh, if you want to check. Sam Durham was advanced, but probably (laughs) probably not right for me to state the figure. Uh, And um, uh, it is, um, and that's you know enough for him now to probably spend two three years uh, researching this book particularly he's living at home. So it's much the same process as it was when I started off. A, if you get a... Uh, you, you, you just got to f- uh, f- f- ask among your friends and colleagues and and people for to find an agent. Uh, I was very lucky in that there was an agent when I was starting. I didn't know anyone in the literary world at all, but uh, there happened to be a very good agent living on the opposite side of the street from my brother. So I literally knocked on her door and and she took me on. And so when those offers came through from publishers... Uh, after the in Zandu was on the in on the front page of the Times, um, I was able to say, "Here's my agent. Um, uh, uh, talk to her." Uh, and um, so you need an agent. You need a very, very, very finished and polished proposal. It doesn't need to be long. Anything from five to ten pages is is more than enough. Uh, but it needs to be really good and a clever idea. Uh, and do not approach an agent or a publisher until. You've got that. It's, it's the single most important thing. And I find often that, you know, I work so hard on this that, that quite often the very, very polished words of the proposal end up being the introduction or the conclusion to the actual book. And with, with more or less little change, that was certainly the case with the anarchy. Um, the proposal became first a big uh, long read in The Guardian and then ended up being the beginning and end of, of, um, of, the, of the finished book. Uh, but really, really work at it. Really, really polish it. Show it to lots of people. Cut it down. Rewrite it. Polish again. And that proposal is your is the source of your did.
1: That's very valuable advice, and I'm sure lots of um, listeners will will take heed of that. Um, as we come towards the end of our time, I wondered if I could ask briefly about the Jaipur Literary Festival and how you came to be involved with that and setting it up.
3: So, um, again, it's all a matter of timing. Um, in the late 90s, literary festivals were going strong in this country. Peter Florence, who was my contemporary at Cambridge, a year above me, had got hay, turned hay into this, or started hay, and, and, and made it this incredibly glamorous place that uh, Van Morrison would sing at and Bill Clinton would turn up at and Gabriel Guthrie and Marquez once appeared in a helicopter. I think I'm making that up. I, but anyway, it was suddenly, you know, a buzzy thing. Uh, and publishers were going there and editors and authors were going there. Um, and there was Cheltenham and there was Edinburgh. It was all beginning to take off everywhere. But there was nothing of that sort in India, um, where I was living. And um, you used to see Indian authors at Hay, at uh, Toronto, at Cheltenham, at Sydney. But you wouldn't ever see them in India. And it was a very odd situation um, that, that, that the country that was producing these writers, many of whom had then moved abroad. So, you know, Arundhati Roy was living in India, but V.S. Naipal was living in Wiltshire, Vikram Set was living in Wiltshire. In 2004, I went to something called the Jaipur Varasat Festival, which was the Jaipur Heritage Festival. Varasat means heritage in Hindi. And um, it was a wonderful festival set in the the gorgeous uh, halls of Amer Fort and other wonderful buildings in Jaipur uh, show it with fashion shows and um, uh, music and fusion music and plays uh, and they got me to do a reading and I said to Faith Singh who had founded it it'd be great if um, had some more literary content because there's no literary festivals in India so the next year we had ten writers then we had sixteen and then the kind of festival split in two for various reasons and the music end of it moved off to um, Jodhpur and became the Jodhpur Riff, the Rajasthan International Folk Festival. And um, the, the literary bit became the Jaipur Literary Festival based in Diggi Palace in Jaipur, which uh, Faith had, had started using for events. Um, and I ended up being one of the uh, founders and directors of it. There was not the, the other director was a woman called Namita Gokali, who was very much keyed into the whole uh, Indian language scene and Indian literature scene, um, and knew, you know, the great writers in, uh, in Hindi and uh, Bengali and Marathi, many of whom I'd never even heard of, uh, although they were people that would sell a million copies of a book, uh, were completely unknown to the English-speaking world, often untranslated. Um, and from the beginning, we, had, we always had this multilingual feel to it, uh, but uh, it was largely English language and my job uh, really was to bring in the big international stars, uh, so I brought in all my mates from Britain but also people from the States and West Indies and Australia and, and so on, Latin America and it grew and it grew and it grew uh, and by um, I suppose about 2010 it become the biggest literature festival in the world with um, a quarter of a million people turning up uh, and I still run it, um, along with uh, Namata and Sanjoy Roy, who is the fantastic uh, producer who's really done all the business decisions and all the uh, the work of actually running the festival. And, and his business teamwork has moved from, I think, a handful of people in a small uh, room or series of rooms to an enormous office block. And at the, we have a meeting just before the festival are all the major stakeholders, which includes people, uh, you know, producing tents and chairs and things. And, and it's often now 250 people uh, turn up to that meeting as a measure of the number of people involved in it. And uh, the last one before lockdown was, uh, I think, a third of a million people. So it's great fun. It's lovely. It's, it's a it's a festival that really is a festival. We have a lot of music. We have a lot of dancing. We, we um, don't pay people, but we put them up in very good hotels for a week. And we lay on spectacular parties every night. Uh, with unlimited food and drink. Um, and it is a good, it's a great invitation. Uh, people tend to say yes. <laughs> and uh, over the years, much everyone has said yes. There are a few people who are logging to get still, like Cormac McCarthy, who just doesn't go out. Uh, but uh, more or less everyone uh, else has been, I think, and all the great international writers. And we still have this major commitment to Indian language uh, programming uh, uh, and Indian programming, which is uh, Namata, uh, uh, overseas. Um, my job is still mainly getting in the Ferangis, the foreigners and the, uh, uh, and the Indian language, uh, Indian, sorry, English language, Indian writers, particularly the non fiction bit is my stuff. So Indian history, Indian art history and, and so on and stuff that I know about. Uh, and it's rather like a three-legged stool. I think if you, any one of these three legs were taken, uh, taken away, um, the stool would fall over. Uh, we've, we've, we're a very odd team, very <laughs> different from each other, but it works very well, and we cover each other's uh, bases. And this odd thing of having two directors uh, works very well in our case, in that um, Namata really knows the Indian scene and 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 particularly the uh, the Basha, the the, the non English literary scene, uh, and I have um, uh, a bet a good hold on uh, the non fiction and on uh, and and on what's going on abroad. Um, and it seems to work. Uh, I say it's very big.
2: No. thank you. That's fascinating. And one, one final question from me was um, the relationship with between the kind of work that you do and, and traditional academic history. I mean, I think you've commented on, you know, the the kind of lack of literary finesse and in, in academic writing. How do you feel that that you kind of relate to the academy? And I suppose how does how does the academy relate to you? What kind of feedback do you get from from academic historians?
3: It's um. It's a very interesting question. The There are many, many academics who write very, very well uh, and write major best-selling books. People, for example, like Stephen Greenblatt, arguably the greatest Shakespearean of our time, the Harvard professor of English, uh, also is capable of writing a book like The Swerve, which uh, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for a year, was... Um, uh won the pulitzer and so on uh and um there are many people like that like linda coley i suppose from this country uh simon sharma uh people who are in academia and uh can also write for a general audience very very well um then there are people such as myself anthony beaver seabag who are not in academia. Um, but write with primary sources uh, at a level that wins big history prizes. Uh, and, you know, it's there are all sorts of benefits of being within the academic system, access to uh, wonderful uh, university search engines uh, and library systems that you can download articles, seminars so that you're uh, up to date with what everyone's doing uh, in research in your field across the world. Um, but there are major drawbacks too, which is, uh, that you don't have the time. You're often in this country administering a department and, and filling in, uh, uh, endless paperwork, uh, marking exams at this time of year, giving seminars on Zoom calls. Uh, and, um, even in a situation like Harvard, where they seem to get wonderful sabbaticals and do a lot less administration than their British counterparts, um, They only get a sabbatical that gives them time to really immerse themselves in the book once every three or four years. Um, And so if you're outside academia, you have the great advantage of just having time and space. And uh, your day is not filled with with teaching or marking or supervising. Uh, And quite often, academics, you know, after they've finished their PhD, just don't have the time to spend a year in an archive. Uh, or going traveling across India, and also have the resources to to travel internationally to you know, search out a library in in America one month and then be looking at stuff in Australia six months later and and, and stuff in India a month after that um, now then then you have the decision after you 've done your primary research in in archives you know do i what language do I write this in? Do you write it in post colonial post modern Academic prose for your contemporaries, or do you write it in the sort of language that a novelist would use uh, to, to to write their um, to write their work? And and you know, it's very possible to be at the cutting edge of uh, writing history, uh, and to write a book that people want to read. Um, and Stephen Greenblatt is an example of someone who's squared that circle unbelievably well. And that is that's what we're all aiming at. Um, I mean, my books, I've been very lucky I've won the big history prize. I've won the Wilson Prize. The other big history prize uh, is the Cundle, um, which I was the uh, a finalist for with two others. Um, and... Um, Generally, my work I think is taken quite seriously in academia, but occasionally you may you find people who 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 will dismiss you um because they haven't read the work, um and one of the other advantages of academia is that people do you know um will give you um a measure of uh, of uh, respect on the basis of your position rather than on your work, so it's a it's it it's a potentially tricky issue which side of that that you fall but it, it it's not it's, it's a circle that can be squared um both by academics writing uh for a general audience successfully on the sharma collie green model or non-academics writing uh doing you know cutting edge research on the beaver uh on the beaver model um uh, and, and getting access to stuff that no one else has seen so uh um I mean I, I think as I say the that initial piece of Bruce Chapman, which I said earlier you know make your book as good as you can do your work and if necessary you know sell your goods uh, in order to support the book becoming as uh, as I, I I like to collect pictures but when white moguls uh, when I ran out of money on white moguls um I ended up selling um Two of my favorite pictures, which I still slightly regret doing, but you know, without that, the book wouldn't have been finished, uh, and and that bought me the time to, to 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 complete it to the level I I wanted to do. I think if you yeah if you if you if you really take the time, do the work, uh, and write it beautifully, um, you can win the prizes and get the bestsellers, and and it's not a, it's not. I mean, what I would resist is this notion that there are two worlds: there are academic history. Which is uh, uh, considered and sensible and right and popular history, which is rubbish and pulpy and nonsense. Um, it's a lot. Uh, there is a, there are there are grey areas in between the two, which is uh, and highlands that you want to uh, occupy. Uh, and if you produce very good primary research and write it beautifully and win the prizes, um, you can get the best of both worlds whether you're in academia or outside
2: of. Well, look, thank you, William. That's a really great place to draw this to the end. Thank you for being a, a fascinating guest on Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with your projects going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.
0: That was the Always Take Notes interview with William Dalrymple. His latest book is The Company Quartet. His website is williamdalrymple.uk.com and he's on Twitter at Dalrymple Will. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway with the uh, discussion with William?
1: William was a gregarious guest. He was very entertaining to listen to. I, I guess it was uh, the thing that I found striking was his attitude towards Insanadu as his career has progressed. Um, you know, he said that it records the impressions, prejudices, and enthusiasms of a very young, naive and deeply Anglocentric centric undergraduate. Um, and I think that's a theme that, you know, previous guests of the show haven't really delved into is how they feel about their early work how about you
0: yeah that is interesting i was i was very pleased to get him i mean he's another um writer that we've sort of chased chased for some time i think i was i was interested in in how it had kind of all fitted together economically and how almost he was, was right he was on the sort of tail of the harry potter uh large mm. and that was what had kind of funded funded him through with these things and i also was fascinated on the process stuff, you know, how he maintains these parallel kind of filing systems while he's doing his research so that when he's writing it, it's, uh, it's all pretty well honed. So, so that was all, all excellent, really.
1: <laughs> and the aesthetic lifestyle he lives while he's writing.
0: Inters- interspersed with a sort of slightly more loosh existence at other times. Uh, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akram.
1: And me, Rachel Lloyd.
0: Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jessica Anheiser.
1: If you'd like to follow us on social media or on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, you can support us on our crowdfunding page at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do.
0: Many thanks. Goodbye.